This is part one of our interview with author Sean McFate. Please come back after the episode and listen to part two. Why is the Army always generally an infantry guy? You know, why can't it be an intel guy? Why can't it be a CA guy? So I think uh, the book also proposes some radical remedies. And one of them is looking at how, you know, we need to change up uh, how our senior leaders, who are our senior leaders and how they perceive of warfare. Because some of these senior leaders, um, they're generally fighting, getting ready to fight a World War II like battle. And I'm wondering, like, do you think we're going to invade China with, you know, badly fighting vehicles? Right. So um, there's a disconnect between what we need for the future of war and what we're investing in. And I like to say that budgets are moral documents because they do not lie. Hi, I'm Doug Hurst, CEO of Third Order Effects, the premier choice for governance and cultural advising. 3OE was created to fill the need for improved governance advising for use by the Departments of Defense and State, USAID, foreign governments, and the private sector. Contact us at thirdordereffects.com. Hi, and welcome to the 1CA Podcast. My name is John McElligot, your host for today's episode. We're joined by Dr. Sean McFate. He is an author, novelist, and foreign policy expert. He is a professor of strategy at the National Defense University and Georgetown University School of Foreign Service in Washington, D.C. He's also an advisor to Oxford University's Center for Technology and Global Affairs. A specialist in national security strategy, Dr. McFate was a think tank scholar at the RAND Corporation, Atlantic Council, Bipartisan Policy Center, and New America Foundation. Recently, he was a visiting scholar at Oxford University's Changing Character of War program, where he conducted research on future war. His career began as a paratrooper and officer in the U.S. Army's storied 82nd Airborne Division, where he served under Stan McChrystal and David Petraeus, and graduated from elite training programs such as Jungle Warfare School in Panama, and he was also a jumpmaster. Dr. McFate then became a private military contractor. Among his many experiences, he dealt with warlords, raised armies for U.S. interest, rode with armed groups in the Sahara, conducted strategic recon for oil companies, transacted arms deals in Eastern Europe, and helped prevent an impending genocide in the Rwanda region. In the world of international business, he was a vice president at TD International, a boutique political risk consulting firm. He was also a manager at Dyncourt International, a consultant at Bearing Point, and an associate for Booz Allen Hamilton. His nonfiction books include The New Rules of War, Victory in the Age of Durable Disorder, which we're going to discuss today, that was published by William Morrow, and The Modern Mercenary, Private Armies and What They Mean for World Order, which was published by Oxford University Press. His fiction books include Shadow War and Deep Black, both published by William Morrow. A coveted speaker, Dr. McFate has also written for and appeared on numerous media outlets. He has authored eight book chapters and edited academic volumes, and published a monograph for the U.S. Army War College on how to raise foreign armies. He holds a B.A. from Brown University, a Master's in Public Policy from Harvard Kennedy School of Government, and a Ph.D. in International Relations from LSE, the London School of Economics and Political Science. He lives in Washington, D.C. For more information about Dr. McFate, visit his website, which is seanmcfate.com. Dr. McFate, welcome to the 1CA Podcast. Yeah, and thank you for your time. I know you've got a lot going on these days. You've been connected to the civil affairs community for quite a while and know some people who are in the Civil Affairs Association. Today we want to focus the conversation about your latest book, The New Rules of War. What's at stake really with The New Rules of War? And you talk about in the book how the U.S. has such a huge lead on other countries in terms of military spending and technological advantage so that we could defeat 
many foes several times over. So why do the new rules matter to policymakers and military leaders? Well, the new rules matter because we're fighting the wrong wars. Um, I wrote this book, The New Rules of War. First of all, it's written to be accessible. I wrote it so my mother could read it. It's not like an academic tome. And the reason I wrote it is because I have a lot of friends, like your listeners, who've lost friends um, in Iraq and Afghanistan. As a taxpayer, it sickens me to see trillions of dollars sort of flushed down the toilet in places like that. And as a vet, it hurts me to see our national image tarnished by low-level foes. Yet we have the best military, even, even our enemies know that. So what's the problem? Why are we struggling at winning wars? And that's why I wrote the book, to answer that question. Like, why are we continuing to struggle with wars despite all of our advantages, despite our amazing military? What's the problem? And so you took, uh, would you say it was a scholarly approach or scholarly combined with your personal experience because you have a lot of stories about what you've gone through in your career and applying it to the new rules? Yeah, so this book, it, it's, it's not a scholarly, well, it, it's undergirded by real scholarship, real rigor. But I wrote it like a magazine article. I wrote it to be read. I wrote it so you can read it on an airport or you can read it downrange or anywhere. It's not like it's a heavily footnoted academic tome or treatise. It's, it's written so everybody can read it. You know, it, it's, um, it's written that it could be sold at Walmart and everybody would read it, and it is. Um, because we have to get, all of us have to get the word out. We need a national discourse about what does winning look like in modern war because what we're doing is not working. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, you wanted to write this for your mother. Was your mother one of the early reviewers and gave you feedback on it too? <laughs> no, she, my mother's not. No, my mother is like, you know, the furthest away from, from war as you can be. I wrote it so like everybody could read it. I mean, I wrote it so like I could go to a local parking lot and hand this book to somebody like, oh, this is interesting. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it does not read like a think tank walk piece. It does not read like an academic press piece or some piece of political science. The ideas that undergird it are very serious, very rigorous, but it's, it, it reads, again, it reads like a Vanity Fair article. Yeah, no, it's a great read. Um, and, and I think you try to frame it uh, by talking about strategic atrophy, uh, which you argue is at the heart of why Western militaries have been losing wars for decades. You know, we're yeah. winning many battles, but losing the wars. So why does that continue? Yeah. So, look, uh, the last time the West decisively won a war was 1945, right? World War II. Since then, the West has been struggling all the world. Think of, like, you know, it's not just the United States and Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan. It's, it's the French in Vietnam and Algeria. It's the British in Palestine and Cyprus. It's the Soviets in, the Afghan, in Afghanistan. You know, why are these big militaries, you know, struggling, including our own? The reason, you know, tactically and operationally, at those levels of war, we dominate, we rock, we kick butt. The problem is at the strategic level of war, the, the national security establishment, that's the problem. They have a, we have a low strategic IQ. We have an amazing military of other amazing, you know, sort of instruments of national power, but the people in charge of deploying them are frankly not high strategic IQ people, okay. <laughs> Republican or Democrat. And I call this strategic atrophy. Yeah. Uh, and I talk about this in the book, about what, what does that mean? So winning, winning wars is, you know, it's, it's, it takes strategic thought. And that is the problem. Our strategic thought is atrophied. Yeah. So we have a National Security Council. We have a, a whole body of government that has committees of oversight. We have all these agencies. Who are these people at the table who should be 
developing the strategy? Great question. So the, the people who are developing the strategy, if you look back to the last time the U.S. had a real grand strategy, it was the Cold War. It was containment. It was Ken's long program and NSC-68. Those are strategic thinkers. The people who are the National Security Council today, I'm not talking about the secondees in the interagency and the military, I'm talking about the political appointments. These are speechwriters. You know, they're not, they have no background. There's no Dean Atkinson's, whether it's not a, a partisan issue, it's not a Democratic versus Republican issue. This is an American issue. And that's the problem is like we don't have strategic thinkers. And the reason is, because, there's a lot of reasons for it. One reason is that in the civilian university world, there's nowhere you can learn to study warfare. War is just not politically correct, right? So nobody studies it. And in our war colleges, and there are no war colleges in the civilian world, in the war colleges, we've, we've atrophied in the war colleges. Uh, there are some war colleges that still teach essentially stuff from the 1980s. Uh, that really is not relevant. War has moved on. We have to move on too. And that's one of the reasons I like the CA community, because I think the CA community, they are on the frontier of warfare, and they see what's required. And one of the rules of the 10 new rules of war I lay out is that some of the best weapons don't fire bullets. Okay. Let's dive into this a little bit more. Um, well, before we do that, I want to ask you about being a futurist, right? So this is about future war. And yeah. in your book, you talk about how everyone else who predicts futures, uh, future conflicts is wrong. But that's what you do in the book. So why are your predictions any better than anyone else's? It's a good question. So I, I look back and say, how come we're getting war so wrong? Warfare, like war has moved on. We have not. That's the bottom line problem. That's why we struggle. So where, why, what's, the, what's the reason for this? The reason is because our war futurists are backwards looking. So where does the Pentagon think, you know, when you think like, well, okay, the Pentagon wants to buy two more aircraft carriers, who's driving that, that demand signal? It's war futurists. It's, you know, there's obviously Lockheed Martin and Congress, they have their fingers in pots, but ultimately there are, war futurists have a vision of the future of war that we're buying stuff against, that we're training against. And who are the most powerful war futurists? It's not generals and soldiers. It's not even think tank people or academics. The most powerful war futurists are, is Hollywood. It's novels. Because they have the ability to fire up our imagination. So if you look at, and if you think about what do they base war on, for them it's World War II with better technology. I mean, think about Star Wars. Star Wars is like, Midway in space, about midway in space with lightsabers, right? Um, you know, most most people. If you look at Tom Clancy's Red Storm Rising, a book about World War III in the 1980s that everybody read. It was basically World War II with better technology. There was no nuclear weapons in that book, nothing. And so most war futurists, they think they're looking forward, but really they're looking backwards, and they imagine the future of war being fought with the last war with better technology. And for us, that's World War II. And everything we're doing now, like the F-35 or the Ford-class carrier, this is all for like some big battle of Midway in the South China Sea using Ford-class carriers and F-35s. Yeah. But that's not how China's winning the South China Sea. They're winning it without carrier groups. And that's an example of what I'm talking about. So you go back in, in, into history a little bit to talk about Billy Mitchell, General Billy Mitchell, who's, who came up with some great ideas that were poo-pooed at the time. So that was from the 1930s. 
you've come out with an amazing book, which uh, I think has probably been, you probably know the numbers, written by, or read by thousands of people, uh, purchased the books, you know, downloaded copies, gone to the library. Has DOD given you the cold shoulder? You know, do you have what you call Cassandra's curse as well? And it's actually being read widely within DOD. Um, uh, we can talk about the reactions in DOD, which are a bit nuanced. But basically, one of my heroes is Billy Mitchell, right? Billy Mitchell was a, a true war futurist. Most war futurists are fraud, but they do exist, and they're rare, these war prophets. And when they come out, they're usually, as you said, poo-pooed. And Mitchell's an example. So he was a U.S. Army aviator in World War One. And he saw the future of war, and it was air power, air power. And when he came back as a one-star to Washington, he told all his friends and colleagues, peers, the future is air power. We've got to prepare for it. And, of course, they were backwards-looking, too. They thought the future war would look like the last war, which would be trench-line warfare. So they, like the French and others, what did they invest in? They invested the Maginot Line, the biggest trench system in history. Yeah. Meanwhile, you know, Mitchell was saying, no, the future is air power, and nobody would listen to him. He went on this, on this command tour of the Pacific Ocean. He came back, uh, and he, had, he said, he predicted in 1924 that the Japanese will launch a sneak attack at Pearl Harbor on a Sunday morning at 7.30 a.m. using airplanes. Hmm. And guess what happened after this? Yeah. He got court-martialed. Sometimes it's easier to court-martial somebody than hear what they're having to say. You know, so drunk are they, are we in our confirmation bias? And we know how this ends. You know, Pearl Harbor happened 15 years later. The military said it was caught completely by surprise, even though one of its own called it. And that's what we're doing now. We are sitting behind our national lines of these big-ticket tactical warfare items like Bradley fighting vehicles and, uh, you know, again, F-35s, which we spent $1.5 trillion on, trillion, you know, and these are national lines. So it's not like we're asleep at the wheel. People are doing things, but you think they're the wrong things to be doing, the wrong investments that yeah, should be happening. at the strategic level. So wars in, it has three levels to war, as you all know. There's tactical at the bottom, operational in the middle, and strategic at the top. The strategic level, which is where war, wars are won and lost, you know, think again, you can win every battle but lose the war, that's where we're messing up. And we're investing in the wrong things, things that we need to invest are not getting invested in. Uh, I look at the CA community as being an example of that. Uh, and, you know, and part of it looks, you look at like, who are the four stars that get promoted? to run the services, why is the Army always in, generally an infantry guy, you know? Yeah. Why can't it be an intel guy? Why can't it be a CA guy? So I think uh, the book also proposes some radical remedies, and one of them is looking at how, you know, we need to change up uh, how our senior leaders, who are our senior leaders and how they perceive of warfare, because some of these senior leaders, um, they're generally fighting, getting ready to fight a World War II-like battle. And I'm wondering, like, do you think we're going to invade China with, you know, badly fighting vehicles? I mean, right. So um, there's a disconnect between what we need for the future of war and what we're investing in. And I like to say that budgets are moral documents because I do not lie. So you talk about one suggestion is transforming the military, and you argue that the U.S. military should expand special operations forces and the soft TTPs, tactics, techniques, and procedures, apply them to non-soft forces. And you also wrote, quote, other unconventional capabilities should be expanded and improved, like psychological operations and civil affairs, 
which can mobilize people on the ground and build proxy militias for U.S. interests, end quote. So do you have any details behind that idea? First of all, I, I don't advocate that we make the big military into soft. That's not desirable. It's not feasible. Yeah. But we need to make the bigger military more soft-like in terms of its warrior ethos and the way it's organized, the way it sinks, the way it's equipped, how it fights. Uh, and to realize that you know firepower alone is not going to win wars anymore. And so one of the ideas that I put forward, which is which is attracting a lot of attention, uh, both good and bad, is this idea of an American foreign legion. Let me explain what American foreign legion is. So when your when your listeners think of a foreign legion, they probably think of the French foreign legion. Yeah, the French foreign legion and Jean Claude Van Damme. Yeah, exactly, and mercenaries. And so that's actually not what the foreign legion is. So a foreign legion, using the French foreign legion as an example, it's basically it's an army unit, a U.S. army unit or a French army unit, but it's enlisted come from all over the world. They enlist, and after you know a career, they get citizenship. And we already have a visa program in our country that allows it. After a break, we're going to return to our discussion with author Sean McFate. This episode is sponsored by Third Order Effects, the premier choice for governance and cultural advising. Third Order Effects maintains a private network of high-end consultants for advising at the most senior levels. Our people have a mix of military and civilian acquired skills and experience. Their time living and working overseas combined with their linguistic abilities make them the best qualified personnel to analyze other cultures and advise clients within the governance domain. We help clients eliminate the consequences of second and third order effects of poor planning and execution of the missions focused only on short-term outcomes. Apply to join our team or contact us about contracting opportunities. Visit us at thirdordereffects.com. Welcome back to the 1CA Podcast. I'm your host, John McElligot. Today, our guest is author Sean McFate. Sean, can you tell us why having a foreign legion would be so important to the United States? Boots on the ground, we have three pretty bad options. We either go in heavy like Iraq, tens of thousands of people, which is undesirable. We use unreliable proxies, or we do contractors. Like right now in Afghanistan, there's, there's three times as many contractors as there are U.S. troops. And that's just wrong for lots of reasons. That has a lot of problems with it. Yeah. Uh, and then we do like soft, you know, they do their, their stuff. But the soft, that's not a, a sustainable strategy, right? Soft and airstrikes. So a way to do this, to get around this, is if we create a foreign legion that can go into a zone of disorder that we care about, whether it's the Middle East or in Africa or in Latin America, and stay there. And they can do things, and they will do things that regular militarians don't use, don't do. They can blend ideas and strategies and tactics that we see amongst the soft community. They're less doctrine-bound. I think that would give us a lot of strategic maneuver room, and that's what we need. Um, and, and let's be honest about it. Americans do not care about dead. They care greatly about dead Marines and dead soldiers. They do not care about dead contractors or dead mercenaries, or we want to call them. Right. Uh, and this allows commanders to do things they need to do, and that's frankly why we have a military. Folks, you've been listening to an interview with Dr. Sean McFate, author of The New Rules of War, Victory in the Age of Durable Disorder. I wanted to talk with you about grand strategy. Um, are your rules of war warfare based on the assumption that the United States will continue its grand strategy of hegemonic uh, primacy, or do you see that our role in the world is fundamentally shifting? It's fundamentally shifting. 
rail against that. So, I mean, one of the reasons that the U.S. is strategically adrift and has been strategically adrift since the end of the Cold War is that we don't have a grand strategy. Again, this is a, uh, this is a nonpartisan issue. We don't have a grand strategy that can focus our interagency, focus our government, focus the American people on what our role is in the world and what we're trying to achieve. Yeah. Uh, right now, it changes every 40 years, and uh, our allies are as confused as we are. <laughs> Even our enemies are confused. So we need a grand strategy, and it can't be promising. Promising is the idea that we can just sort of rule the world forever, <laughs> and that's, that's not going to last forever. Uh, it's expensive. Uh, we can't be the world cop, which is what primacy demands. Um, and we shouldn't want to be the world cop. That's not really our role in the world. Um, but we need a grand strategy, and the book explains what a grand strategy is and how to create one. Because there are some people who don't believe grand strategy is even possible in this day and age, which is a, a really sad take on the world. Do you think that after World War II, uh, I was reading a book, and the author is arguing that after World War II, um, the United States and, and victors set up a system that we have, the New World Order now, where the U.S. basically has, uh, using naval power, has supported the safety of international trade in the system we have today. And that's sort of the strategy that directs our military involvement. Partially. So after, after World War II, the victors of World War II created... They created the world order as we, they created two world orders that kind of emerged after World War II. One was the Soviet communist world order, and then was the parallel or competing Western world order. And after the, the Suez crisis of 1956, it, France and England sort of took a back seat, and it was really the United States. And since then, the United States has, has dominated the West in terms of hegemonically, not just in terms of naval power, but in terms of military power, economic power. Power, social power, cultural power, we're it. We're the world hegemon. Because after the Soviets collapsed, we were the, we were the sort of the, the unipolar moment. But now, as, ever, as your listeners know, we have China really bucking at our, our heels. Uh, Russia wants to upset that order. Of course, Al-Qaeda wants to burn it down, uh, and that's still out there. Um, but we are, the idea that we can remain sort of top of the world forever is wrong. Uh, and also, let's not forget that even an undefeated military can lose. Thank you for listening to part one of our interview with author Sean McFate. Please come back and listen to part two. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of 1CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory.